Well, good morning. It's awesome to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapters 3 and 4, so I'd encourage you to either your phone, your iPad, physical Bible, there are Bibles underneath your chairs, uh, go ahead and pull that out. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, but we are, we're going to be looking at what does it mean when God calls you to do something for his glory. Because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the reality is you have been called for a purpose for his plan. And it's an awesome privilege. And what's great is most of what his calling entails is in God's word. It's, it's spelled out for us, which is awesome. But here's the thing about God's calling. It can be exciting, but also terrifying. And so today we're going to look at the calling of Moses, and we're going to see six realities of what it means to be called by God. So just to give you a little bit of background context, because we're jumping into a passage. If you've never heard the story of Moses, or you have, here's the review. So Moses grew up, he was born to Israelite slaves. The whole nation of Israel is enslaved to Egypt. Um, his, his parents wanted to rescue him because Pharaoh sent out an edict that all male children born would be put to death. So they, they rescue their son in an odd way. They put him in a basket and float him down the river. Weird, right? But God uses that. And this is what's super awesome is Pharaoh gives this command and Pharaoh's daughter is the one that adopts him. So he grows up in the, the house of Pharaoh and later in life he, he's walking amongst his people who are in slavery and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating this Jewish slave. And he looks right and left, he steps in, he actually kills the guy, buries him in the sand. Next day, goes out, he sees two Jewish um, slaves fighting, one hits the other, he steps in, it's like, that's not how you treat your brother, and they both look at him, kind of panicked, like, are you going to kill us too? So he realizes his secret is out. And it is known what he did, it goes to Pharaoh's ear, and Pharaoh says, oh, you got to take this guy out. He runs, he flees Egypt, he goes to a place called Midian, which is east, so if you want to geographically, you know, pictured, it's east of Egypt, so you would go through the Sinai Peninsula. He goes there, God provides a family for him, he gets a wife, and he ends up shepherding sheep for his father-in-law for 40 years. In fact, the book of Acts says that for 40 years, Moses is doing this, and then God speaks to him in the burning bush. So if you would, look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Jump down to verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses, said to Pharaoh, or, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you come, or when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses notices this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. That's not how fire works, right? So naturally he goes and he, he checks it out, and God speaks to him through this burning bush. And there are different ways that God can call us. It can be audible. It can be inside our heart, like a small whisper, like with Elijah. It can be through his word. 
where you're reading something from God's word and you're like, oh, that's, he's talking about me. Or it can be through a desire that he lays on your heart. Example of this, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the Persian empire, to the king, and his, the king notices that Nehemiah is distressed and he asks him what's going on. It's like, my people are back home in the land, but there's no wall to protect them. God laid that desire on his heart. The king blessed him, gave him the resources even to go do it. Real life example of this besides scripture, we, we are doing a say yes campaign to encourage you, the church, to use your hands and feet for Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to serve in student ministry and rise kids. And this one lady wanted to be part of middle school ministry and she told me why. She said, my daughter had a really hard time in middle school and I really want to help kids at this age. God laid that on her heart. That's God's calling. It's just awesome that God still works in those ways. Anyway, verse 5. God speaks to Moses. He tells him, I want you to remove your sandals because this ground is holy. Holy just means separate or other. It's special that God's presence is here. And so he does that, and then he hides his face. And we might ask ourselves, is he actually seeing God? Because according to Scripture, God is invisible, and no one has ever seen him. But what Moses is doing, he is aware that God's presence is emanating from the bush, and so he is hiding his eyes. He is, he is actually practicing something that you would culturally do at this time, where you would not look at someone directly in their eyes if they are above you. So he is, he is giving um, this humility to God and recognizing that he is greater than himself. So then God gives him his calling. He says, I understand our people are suffering, and I want to send you. Verse 10 is his calling, and if you're curious, you know, what is God's calling? If you look in your outline, you have a definition of it. The Dictionary of Bible Themes defines God's calling as God's summoning of people to himself so that they will belong to him to serve him in his world. The calling of a believer may involve a specific place, a task, or a vocation in life. But notice how Moses responds to this calling. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In, in other words, God, why would you pick me? I'm a shepherd. I have no business doing this. From a human standpoint, that is a very humble response. It's also a response of self-doubt, of self-distrust. And again, it seems reasonable. It's like, God, why would you want to use me? I just ran from that country. I grew up in, that, in the Egyptian court, but I have no authority. I have no influence. And God's response in verse 12 is, I will be with you. And this will be the sign, the evidence, when you've brought the people out of Egypt and you're worshiping me on this mountain. In other words, he's saying, God is saying to Moses, I'm going to qualify you. You want the evidence of that? I'm going to give you a snapshot of the future. You're going to bring the people out of Egypt. You're going to serve me on this mountain. That's evidence that I'm going to qualify you to do this. So if you're taking notes this morning, when God calls you, God qualifies you. God qualifies you. When God qualifies us, he equips, he enables, he helps us to succeed to meet the requirements to be used by him for his plan. Let me give you an example. Peter and John were fishermen before Jesus came along. That was their livelihood. They followed Jesus for three and a half years. After Jesus rose again from the dead and ascends into heaven, they go to the temple to pray and they encounter a paralyzed man. God heals this man through Peter and John, and a crowd forms, right? Because that's not normal. That doesn't happen all the time. And they start teaching about Jesus in the temple court to the point that the religious leaders come, and this is, this is us coming in on, on their observation. 
Here's, here's what Acts 4.13 says. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus. Two fishermen, not theologians, not seminary trained, but they were with Jesus who qualified them to speak the truth. They recognized they were with Jesus, but they also recognized, you guys haven't cracked a book in months. Like, you caught fish. God qualified them. During my last two years of college, I was really struggling with God's calling on my life into full-time ministry, especially to youth, to students. And I remember talking with one of my professors, and I was explaining why I, I really believed at the time that I could not be used by God to be a youth pastor. And, and I gave him two reasons, and I said, I, I don't think I can do this because I will not be able to relate well with students. I grew up homeschooled, okay? Culturally, how am I going to relate with public school students, right? My class consisted of myself and my sister, okay? My graduating class in a group of families that were doing this, four, right? Class of 06, four people, right? So I'm, I don't see how I can relate with them culturally. And then on top of that, I, I also uh, struggle and have struggled my whole life with AIS, which is athletically impaired syndrome. <laughs> now you laugh at that, but it's real. Okay? I didn't play sports in high school. I didn't, I didn't do city league, right? I didn't do any of that. If I had a league in homeschool, guess who's on the team? Exactly. One person. I can't pass to myself and do all that, right? It's just not possible. So I say all this to my professor, and he's listening, and then he stops me. He said, you don't think you'd be able to relate well because you're homeschooled. You don't think you'd be able to relate well with student-athletes. I'm like, yeah, what am I going to talk to them about, sports? No. They give stats. I'm like, cool, numbers. They talk about a play. Yeah, stuff happened on the field. And he said, well, what if? What if you were willing to listen to, to talk with, to encourage, to support, to love on, to do life with student-athletes? Does anything else matter if you're doing those things? Self-reflection is not a bad thing. Looking at what you are capable of doing is not a bad thing. One Bible commentator writes this. He says, self-distrust is good, but only if it leads to trust in God. Self-evaluation, self-distrust, they can be good things, but they can quickly become excuses. So it's ironic from a human standpoint, that Moses is going to go back to the place that he ran away from. But from God's standpoint, it's intentional, it's on purpose. It is ironic from my standpoint, and it also proves God has a sense of humor because I have these issues I'm wrestling with, like how am I going to relate to students, how am I going to relate to student-athletes, First six years of my ministry, God places me in a church called Fowler Presbyterian where 99.9% .9 of my students are student-athletes. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, God, you got me. And, and here's the thing. If I had given in to self-distrust and self-doubt and not trusted God, 
I would not have gotten to work with some amazing students and their families. And I just want to show you some pictures of that. This first picture, um, some of these students I had all four years, and then they are now in college, and we went to Hume Lake for the college retreat. The next picture, um, this is our summer camp. And all those students you, s you see behind, behind or in front of me are athletes except for the dude crouching. <laughs> One more slide. Um, this was my final day at that church. And the, the individuals you see behind me represent high school and college students that I got to do life with, and I would have missed out on that had I not trusted and not only that, if I had not trusted God to, to do that in my life at Fowler, I would not be here, I would not be here with you. And I would not have gotten to do life with some amazing students and their families. I wouldn't, got, I wouldn't get to be with our middle school group. And we have a picture of that. There we go. That's us at the movies. Some of whom are now in high school. I wouldn't get to be with our young adults up at Hume Lake. And the family that sleds together stays together. Mainly, if you let go, it's like, bye, right? <laughs> so they're like, hold on, okay. And then lastly, uh, this was from last year. It was our first summer camp as a high school group family. And I show you that because those are my evidences to me from God for my calling. And I would have missed out on that. I would have missed out getting to be with these amazing students and their, and their families. So let's, let's keep reading. Look at Exodus 4, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. So Moses gets this calling, but then he starts, t you know, dialoguing back and forth with God, with God, and he says, you know, they're not going to believe me. And God just responds in the best way. They're going back and forth, and he says, what's in your hand? A staff. What has Moses been doing for 40 years? He's been shepherding. What is God going to do to the instrument of his job? He's going to work a miracle. He's going to work through what Moses is already doing. When God calls you, God uses what you have and do. God uses what you have and do. God does not waste our experiences, our pains, skills, professions, or interests. In fact, God is the most strategic being in the universe. He does not make mistakes when he calls who he has called for his plan. There's a reason God will use all that you have and all that you do for his glory. Growing up, I did a lot of theater, hence why no sports. And I did theater both in church and in local community theater. And what it did, because I, I thought I was going to grow up to be an actor. That was actually my life's goal. And I got used to being up in front of people. Later, I, I received my calling into full-time ministry. God didn't waste that experience. If anything, it prepared me to be comfortable up in front of people to teach and preach God's word. God doesn't waste anything. He does not waste it. But there is a reason why he's taking Moses back into the wilderness. Because he, he's done the sheep. He's now going to guide people for 40 years. 
There's a reason why you attend a certain school. There's a reason why you have a certain job. There's a reason why you have certain interests. And God is going to use those to serve and reach others for him. Everyone in this room is going to be able to reach someone that I can't reach. That the person sitting next to you cannot reach. And that's beautiful because that's how God has designed it. We have an amazing army of people that can reach others that other people can't reach. He can use all that you have and all that you do. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach what you shall speak. So Moses says to God, I'm not good with words. Words hard, not good. Right? He's using this as an excuse, but it is a legitimate reason that he is bringing before God. If you were to, to break down slowness of speech, it literally means he is heavy in mouth and tongue. Essentially, he has some sort of speech impediment. We don't know exactly what it is, but some scholars think it was a stutter. And the way God answers him seems to confirm that it's a speech impediment because he says, who's made the mouth? Verse 11 is a hard verse because God is saying that he makes people blind, deaf, and mute. But I want, I want to add something to that. It's important to realize two factors in that. One, we live in a fallen, sinful world. Our bodies are prone to breaking down. Okay? That's a reality of sin. But also, God can, on purpose, allow those things for two reasons. To use that to give evidence of his salvation through performing a miracle in someone's life or showing his providence in someone's life, or he can also use it to show his grace in someone's life. Yes, this person has this, but look what God is doing through her, right? And God's the only one that can do that. But God is fully aware of Moses' problem. It's not where God and Moses are talking, and he's like, God, this is great, but words are hard. And, and then God's like, oh, that's right. You have a speech impediment. Forgot about that. Yeah, I can't use you. That's not what he says. He reminds Moses that he is bigger than Moses' weakness. God created speech. He created the mouth. This is not a hard issue for him. And it's not grounds to dismiss Moses either. So when God calls you, he works through your weaknesses. He works through your weaknesses. The prophet Jeremiah writes this. He says, O Lord God, you indeed make heaven and earth by your mighty power and great strength. Nothing is too hard for you. Some of you may not know this, but Pastor Matthew and I grew up in youth group together. Yeah, fun fact. And we, we had youth group together for four years, had the same youth pastor. And this, this particular youth pastor who we had for four years had and still has a speech impediment. He would stutter. And yet God used him to preach and teach God's word that impacted Pastor Matthew and I in such a way and many other students' lives. He didn't let his weakness get in the way. God used it. Recently, our youth pastor's dad went home to heaven. And he, our youth pastor spoke 
at his dad's memorial service, and he did an amazing job. He joked about his stuttering. He did stutter. But God spoke words of encouragement and love to the friends and family that were gathered. God is bigger than our weaknesses. Verse 13 of chapter 4. But Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Moses is politely saying to God, Please send someone else. Essentially, thank you, but you have the wrong guy. There are four previous excuses that Moses gives God leading up to this one, and each time Moses gives a response, God's response has been gracious and patient. It's only this one where God gets upset. One commentary writes, Moses is blamed for making excuses, not necessarily because the reasons given are untrue, but because they indicate a lack of faith. When God calls you, giving excuses shows distrust in God. It shows distrust in God. Distrust is a lack of trust. When we show distrust to God, that's a sin. Later, God is really venting to Moses, and he says to Moses, how long will this people, Israel, despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I struggle with this. I forget what God has done and what he is doing in my life. I look at the problem. I fear it. I can't figure it out, which means I'm depending on myself. I'm making excuses for failing to trust in God, and by making those excuses, I am not trusting in God. I am sinning. And one of the most amazing things about our God comes from 2 Timothy, where God says, even though you're faithless, I will be faithful. Even in God's anger with Moses, he shows grace and faithfulness by sending his brother Aaron to do the speaking. But notice, Moses is not let off the hook. He still has to go. God, God lays it out for him. I will speak to you, you will speak to Aaron, Aaron will speak to Pharaoh, but you're going. So shut up, trust me, go. I think that's the message Bible translation of that. He's going to go. But the next reality we need to realize and when God calls us is God shifted this and explained it at the very beginning when Moses was feeling inadequate. When God calls you, God is with you in your calling. For every argument, for every reason, excuse Moses gave, God's answer was always the same to each of them. I will be with you. I'm not qualified. I'll be with you. What if they ask who sent me? I'll be with you in the explanation. They won't believe me. I'll be with you through signs. I have a speech impediment. I'll be with your mouth. Send someone else. I'll be with you and Aaron. Something I often wrestle with as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor is I get caught up in doing things for God and I fail to remember to do things with God. A wise woman has often said this to me. She listens to all my venting of I can't figure stuff out and what about this and I can't do this. She is at, 
ask this question. When has God ever failed you? The answer is never. Even though I don't know what's going on, the answer is never. Even though I have failed him and will continue to fail him, the answer is still never. And if I'm being honest with this person, my heart tightens up because I know the correct answer, but if I admit it, I'm letting go of control. Or I'm going to make an excuse, yeah, but I did this. Never. It's still never. It's still never. Listen to the words of Joshua. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. It's crazy to think that the God who calls us to do things for him would ask us to do it without him. And yet that's how we act. That's how we often live it out. That he sends us out and it's like, good luck. When he's right with us. He's doing it with us and through us. Last passage, look at verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hands. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought him to put to death. Then Zipporah, who's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. Now, sometimes you'll be reading God's word, and it's going along fine. <laughs> and then you hit a passage like this, and it's, she cut off the for what now? <laughs> Let it be known that at Rise Church, we preach the fullness of God's word. And so if you have a conversation... Preferably not at lunch, but afterwards. You're welcome. But this is weird, right? Like, he's finally going, and he's accepted the call. He's got it. He's going. And then the text says, this is God's word, okay? God is on the road waiting to kill Moses. It's like, isn't that counterproductive? You're going to send the guy that you finally got to go, and you're going to kill him? I mean, Aaron's a good silver medalist, but he's not, he's not Moses. What is going on? Why is this in Scripture? This is not a boring book. The genealogies might get a little slow, but man, when you hit this, it's like, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Not this. You should mess with people and be like, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 24, or verse 24. So what is going on? This is what it requires us to go a little further into Scripture, and I'm just going to summarize this for you. In Genesis 17, God used circumcision as a symbol of his covenant promise with Abraham. He promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, meaning you'll have many descendants, and I will give you and your descendants a special piece of land, the promised land. But in order to keep that covenant, which was unconditional from God's standpoint, but the condition from man's standpoint was every descendant of Abraham, every Jew, every male Jew in particular, had to be circumcised as a sign that we have this promise made with God. And so Moses, who is going by God, called by God, to go and be used by God to bring the people of the covenant out of Egypt 
is failing to keep the covenant in his own home. One of his sons had not been circumcised. And so God is on the road, and Zipporah takes action. She understands what's going on. She just flips out a knife and... You know? We don't know how old the boy was. If he, if he was like, you know, an infant, great, no memory of that. But if he wasn't, that is the worst family trip ever, right? I mean, this kid probably had counseling. Like, I mean, you're just riding on a donkey, and all of a sudden, mom pulls a knife out, and it's like, mm. <laughs> Families tell this story forever. It got recorded in Scripture. This kid probably needed counseling, right? Mom, mom is probably, like, just using a knife to, like, prep dinner, and he's probably like, once, once was enough. Do not do that again, right? Yeah, he's suffering from PTSD with a knife, right? It's just... So why? Why is this here? What does this have to do with calling? Our last point, when God calls you, are you actively living out God's word? Let me explain. In no way does any person live out God's word perfectly. Only Jesus can. James writes this. If you listen to God's word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. God may be calling us to something more, but because we are failing to do what he has already called us to do in his word, he won't bless it or allow it to go further. In other words, if we're failing to address sin in our lives, this can affect us on God's calling for what he would have us do if we're not being faithful in what he has already called us to do. Let me give you an example from Scripture about this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple, a follower. Jesus gave us a perfect description of what a follower of Jesus looks like and is known for. In John 13, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, by your love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want to be a follower of Jesus? You're supposed to love. That's your calling. But here's the problem. If we, if we refuse to forgive someone, or if we refuse to admit that we need to ask forgiveness, that's an issue. Because the word used for love in this passage is agape. Agape means sacrificial love. Jesus is saying, the way I sacrificially love you, sacrificially love others. Now, please hear me out. I understand there are things that have been done to us, injustices that have been done to us, and it is hard to forgive. I am not dismissing that. But God is more concerned with a willing heart. And if we are unwilling to forgive someone or admit that we need to be forgiven, we really aren't loving that person above ourselves. And that's what you're called to do in sacrificial love as a follower of Jesus. And not only that, we're not fulfilling our call as a follower because we're supposed to be known from our love. As the worship team comes back up, 
it's important to remember that God's calling on your life translates to everyday living. It's not necessarily moving to another place, a specific task or vocation. It can be, but really the ultimate calling for any believer is to become more like Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate calling. The realities we learn from Moses apply to everyday living in our calling to be more like Jesus. I want to just share with you very briefly just some. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, these are just some of the aspects of your calling. Just listen to these. Jesus calls you to love God and others. Jesus calls you to use your gifts and to serve others, to share his gospel, to make disciples and teach them. It's not just sharing the love of God, it's actually showing them how to love God and to do it together. It's your calling to be baptized, which is a great day to fulfill that calling, by the way. But it's also your calling to go and baptize. It's not a pastor's job. It's not an elder's job. You are qualified to do that from Matthew 28. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. But what if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, maybe you've been coming, maybe you were forced to come, maybe you've come in here because you're kind of curious. I want to just share with you God's universal calling to all people because everyone who's a follower of Jesus had to hear this same calling. This universal calling, God calls all people to repent. Why? Because all people are sinners. But because of God's love for all people, Jesus died for every person's sin, and he promises through that forgiveness eternal life to those who accept him. Therefore, salvation is for all people. It's available for everyone. Scripture says God desires all to come to him, and Scripture promises this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Would you pray with me? Everyone's head bowed, eyes closed. Jesus, you have given us a calling if we are followers of Jesus. The first calling was to salvation. The second call is to live out the reality that we are saved. It's not something we can earn. We do it out of thankfulness. And God, you have a calling on every follower of Jesus Christ. And if we can be honest, when we know what it is in everyday things, it can be hard to do. It may not be moving to another place. It may not be taking a different job. It may not even be a special task. It may just be everyday things. God, help us to live that calling out. Help us to not make excuses because you are with us in the calling. You equip everyone to be used by you. We truly are without excuse. If you're here this morning, with everyone's eyes closed still, if you're here this morning and you are hearing the calling of Jesus Christ on your life and you do not yet know him, you don't have a relationship with him, I want to offer this calling to you. If that's you, would you just look up at me and raise your hand? I want to pray with you. You've never accepted Jesus Christ. You've grown up in church. You've not grown up in church, and you want this. I see you. No one at Rise Church prays alone, so family, would you pray out loud with me? Dear Jesus, 
I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But you can. Please forgive me of all my sins. I want to follow you. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. I want to follow you. Amen. We have just earned and been blessed with a new brother in Jesus Christ. And to anyone, if you prayed that prayer, Jesus has saved you. You are now a son or daughter of the Most High God. Your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. And your next step, I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Your next step is to be baptized. It's just a symbol of what Jesus already did in your life. It is you saying, the old has gone, the new has come. I don't have a bathing suit. I don't have a change. It's all up there. Don't make excuses. This is something we celebrate because you have just passed from death into life. And that's something we celebrate as Rise Church.